Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. And I'm excited about where we're at in our series this morning. Last month on our friend day, we had a special guest speaker here, evangelist Tim Lee. For those that were not here, Tim Lee uh, served our country in Vietnam and uh, stepped on a landmine and had both of his legs um, taken from him, were blown off of his body, and, and uh, amazingly, he lived. And now for nearly 50 years, he has um, crisscrossed this country and gone around the world in his wheelchair, um, preaching and, and the gospel of Christ and telling his story. And he came the first Sunday of October, and on that Sunday, we had 47 people that made a profession of faith in Christ, and then we had many that were, uh, several that were saved the, the week after. We've had some the week before. We've been having baptisms every week. And so I had a burden. There were so many that we had a, a good number, probably close to 200 first-time guests here on that Sunday, and, and we've been having guests every week. And if you're a guest today, I say welcome. Thank you for being here. If it's your first time here, it's our prayer that it won't be your last time, that you'll continue to join us and grow with us. Um, uh, but I, I got burdened. We've been in this series all year on Sunday mornings in the book of Genesis, but I got burdened. There are so many that are newer to church or maybe newer to the gospel story or new Christians, new believers. And so I preached, you might recall, the next Sunday, I preached a message out of our series in Genesis that I called um, the three steps of biblical Christianity. And we looked at the Great Commission, Jesus kind of outlined to his disciples, and I told you that the three steps of biblical Christianity are number one, salvation. Salvation is how we become a child of God. We get saved. We, the Bible calls it being born again, and salvation is a one-time decision. It's something that happens, and, and we make a decision by faith. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're saved by grace through faith. Christ used the physical analogy of, of our physical birth to liken it to our spiritual birth, being born again. There's a, it's, a, it's not something, sometimes I'll ask people, have you ever trusted Christ as Savior? And they'll say, oh, I, I do that every night. Well, that's not in Scripture. It's not an every night thing. Or I'll ask someone, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I've been in church my whole life. My dad was a pastor. Those are great things, but those have nothing, uh, they can have something, I guess, to do with you coming to know the Lord, but they are not, the fact that you've been in church, or your dad was a pastor, or your grandpa was a pastor, has nothing to do with your personal decision. Again, that's not the right wording. It does have something to do with you finding out about Christ, but you understand what I'm saying. It doesn't get you any closer to heaven. So we talked about salvation, and then the Bible says that they that gladly received his word we're baptized, and we had one get baptized this morning. We've had baptisms um, every week for the last few months and seeing people's lives change. And then I talked about sanctification, and uh, that is a lifelong process, and that is the, the word sanctification, if you were to look it up or just Google the definition. It is, it's, it's simply this, it's the act of making or declaring something holy to sanctify it. Sometimes we'll use the word set apart. How many of you, you have, uh, you have you're, you're like my wife and I, you're old enough to have fine china. 
I don't think people really get fine china anymore. A few of us, we have fine china, right? We put that on our wedding registry. I'm not sure why. I haven't seen it in about 20 years. I don't know what we've done with it. Do we still have it? Do you know where it is? All right. We're going to, we just use it? Oh, we just used it. I, it was great. We just used it. It was some of my favorite. When did we just use it? Thanksgiving? We did not use it. Just the cups. Yeah, not the plates. Yeah, I knew that. I knew we used the glasses. All right, we'll talk about this later. But anyways, fine china. Well, what is that? We set that aside for special use, right? Well, that's the idea of being sanctified. We've been saved. We're supposed to be set aside for special use for our master. He has a special purpose for us, and we're to grow. This idea of being sanctified, sanctification for the believer is something where we move from being an immature newborn baby in Christ to becoming mature followers of Christ. And it's where I begin to walk in the steps. I saw this quote, because we often think about the gospel. The gospel just means the good news. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We often think about the gospel as being necessary for salvation, and it is. We have to believe in the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to be saved. The gospel informs our decision to be baptized. We are picturing the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection. But I I like this quote I read this week. It said, the same gospel that changed your life should also change how you live. And so the gospel then should be changing us on a daily basis, changing the way that we speak, the way that we think, the things that we do, the ways that we spend our money, the ways that we treat our family, all of those things, not in our own strength, but in the power of Christ through us, the gospel, the truth of his death, burial, and resurrection changes how we live, and that process of it changing us we call sanctification. This is all introduction, we'll get where we're going in our series in Genesis, uh, but, but I told you on that Sunday there are three parts of our sanctification, and I won't spend a long time in review here, but number one, there is our positional sanctification. So again, sanctification is the act of declaring something holy. To, to make something holy, to declare it holy. Positionally, when you are saved, the, the, the theological term is you're justified. Justification, it's an accounting term. You're declared righteous. Your sin debt is paid. We stamp paid in full. Positionally, when you get saved, you are positionally righteous. What do I mean by that? No matter what you did this week, good or bad, if you're saved, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. The Bible talks about nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So our positional sanctification, and by the way, there's nothing you did to earn it. You didn't earn the righteousness of Christ. He gave it freely to you as a gift. And so guess what? The beautiful thing is there's nothing you can do to lose it. You can't lose your salvation. Oh, I did bad today. I lost it. Now I've got to do good to get it back. There's nothing we can do to earn it. All of our righteousness, the Bible says, are as filthy rags. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So when we get saved, we are declared righteous. We're justified. In Christ, we are, we are a new creature. Christ, God, when he looks at us, positionally, he sees the righteousness of Christ. The second part of sanctification that I talked to you about is what we call progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. And and this is the act of a believer or the process, if you will, of a believer growing in Christ where we become more like him. And it doesn't happen immediately. 
How many of you figured that out when you got saved? All of your sin nature didn't go away immediately. You didn't become immediately like Christ. And by the way, we never fully will until we are delivered from this earthly sinful body, this sin nature that we have. But we can become more like him as the Holy Spirit controls us. As we walk in the Spirit, we'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You look at some people and you hear their stories, and it's like, I was like this, and I used to do that, and I used to be there, and I was a liar, and I was angry, and I was a thief, and I was lustful, and I was a a cheater, and I did this, and I was a criminal, and I was in jail, and I got saved, and God began to work on me, and and now uh, this, and you see somebody whose life is totally different. What is that? Yes, it's salvation, but it's also sanctification. God is working on us to change us into his image as we allow him to. That is progressive sanctification. In our our journey of progressive sanctification, there are some good days and some bad days, some victories and some defeats, some ups and some downs. But the goal is to move from the milk of the word to the meat of the word. This is the day-to-day Christian life between our salvation and our eternity with Christ in heaven. And then lastly, and I won't spend much time here, but we have ultimate sanctification. That is, again, in theological terms, we call it glorification. That is when we, are, we get our glorified body and we are united with Christ, our Savior in heaven. That is our ultimate sanctification. The Bible says that we are delivered from this body of flesh. We spend eternity in, in heaven. There is no more sin. There's no more crying. He'll wipe away all tears. And that is our ultimate sanctification. So thank you for sticking with me. I know a little bit of a, I don't know what what you would call that academic introduction and some review, but I say all of that because it's going to lead into where we find ourselves with Jacob. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis in chapter number 33, please. Genesis in chapter number 33. So for the believer, our positional sanctification or our righteousness is a one-time event that cannot be changed or lost. That's our positional sanctification. And our ultimate sanctification is a future event. So if you've not been saved yet, let Christ forgive you of all of your sins today. Become, accept the righteousness of Christ on your account. Let him pay your sin debt. Let him take you to heaven when you die. Make today the day of your positional sanctification. That is a one-time event if you're a believer in your past. Your, if you're a believer, your ultimate sanctification or glorification is an event, it's, it's a, in the future. Where we live on the day-to-day is in our progressive sanctification, becoming more like Christ. The command, be ye holy, for I am holy. It's a daily journey that we walk every day between the two, our progressive sanctification. And you know, there are some that excel in growing spiritually. And then there are some that have been saved for years or maybe even decades, and we don't see a lot of growth. Paul talked about some of that in the New Testament. He said, when you should have been teachers, you have need that I teach you. He said, you're still babies in Christ. What was he saying? He was saying, you've not really progressed much in your sanctification. He wasn't saying you're not saved. He wasn't saying you're not going to heaven. He's saying, why are you still a little spiritual infant? Why are you still a little baby? You should be growing. You should be progressing in your knowledge, in your application of the truth of the word, in your sanctification. So it brings us to our text this morning, because last week, if you were here, I told you that last week and this week was somewhat, they're standalone messages, but they're somewhat linked. They're somewhat of a two-part message. 
And we looked last week at Jacob having a complete identity change. I'm not talking about gender change. We're talking about his identity in who he was before God. You remember Jacob, that word supplanter, or the one that overreached or deceiver? Jacob wrestled all night, our message last week. He wrestled all night uh, with God, and he said, I I need you to to bless me. I need your presence. I need your power. I need you to change me. And what do we see that, that, that the angel that night said to him? Thou art no more Jacob, but Israel. You are now a prince with God. What do we see last week? We, we see a complete transformation, an identity change. What happens when you get saved? It's a transformation. It's an identity change. You go from lost to saved, unbeliever to believer. You go from one that's walking in your own ways to now one who's a child of God. You go from a creation of God. We're all creation. We are all cr- cr- those who've been created by God, but, but you have to choose, do I want to be a child of God? And so we see that identity change in our message last week. Last week's message was simply this, can people change? And I opened with the phrase, can a leopard change his spots? What's the answer? Can people change, yes or no? The answer is yes. And we looked at how Jacob changed in some ways that that either we or our loved ones can change. And we saw that identity change last week in chapter 32. We saw that people can change, and if you missed it, you can go back and listen to that. If you're, if you're wondering, can I change? Can I get victory over this? Now, this week in chapter 33, we're going to see not just the change, the transformation of Jacob and his identity change from Jacob to Israel. We're going to see his development, what actually changed. So last week we saw people can change. How can they change? This week we're going to see what should change in us. We're going to look this morning at a message, what should change in us. If you have your Bibles, Genesis 33, if you don't have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to grab one from the pew rack to follow along. We're going to look together. Would you follow along? We're going to look at the first 17 verses of this chapter. Follow along, put yourself in the story, and then we'll pull out a few thoughts on what changed in Jacob and what should change in us after our identity change, after we're a new creature in Christ. Genesis 33, verse number one. The Bible says, and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came and with him. How many men, church? 400. And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. Remember last week? Let's get context where we're at in our story. Jacob, after working for his father-in-law for 20 years, he's married two, two of the, his father-in-law's daughters. He only wanted one. His father-in-law tricked him to take the one he didn't think would get married otherwise. So he took Leah. Then he worked seven more years, got Rachel. Now he's got 11 sons. He's got one daughter, Dinah. We're going to see a, a tragic story with Dinah, a tragic chapter in the Bible next week as we look at that. And he's left his father-in-law. And as he's leaving to go back home, um, He's, he's going, heading back home. Uh, what happens? He realizes he's going to be kind of going near where his twin brother Esau that he hasn't seen in a couple decades lives. So he sends some messengers to go try to talk to him. And where we left it last week was Esau and 400 men were coming to see Jacob. That's all Jacob knows. Now remember, the last time Jacob heard anything from his, brother, his twin brother Esau, it was this, I'm going to kill you if it's the last thing I do. Once dad dies, you're dead. I'm killing you. That's the last thing Jacob knew about his brother 20 years ago, his brother's feelings toward him. So now Jacob's messengers in chapter 32 told him, hey, your brother's coming, and he's bringing 400 men with him. 
That doesn't sound real good. I don't know about you, Joe. If somebody said, I want to kill you, and then the next time you see them, they're coming with 400 of their closest comrades. I don't think I'd be real excited. This is where Jacob's at, and he's wrestled through the night. Jacob is wrestling through the night here and with God, and now we pick up the story. He lifts up his eyes. He sees Esau coming, verse number two, and he put the handmaids and their children foremost. Really brave guy. Hey, honey, you go first. You take the kids. And Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. You can see that Rachel's his beloved wife, and Joseph is that, that precious son. And he passed over. Now, we do see a little courage here. It says in verse number three, he passed over before them. He puts them first and then maybe has a change of heart. He goes first. And the Bible says, and he bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. I picture it. They're far and he bows. And then they go a few more steps and he bows seven times as he's getting closer so that Esau knows. Jacob makes it clear. I'm not looking for a fight. He's bowing as they get closer would you read verse number four aloud, an amazing response that Jacob didn't expect. Ready? Begin. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children. And he said, who are, these, who are those with thee? And he said, the children which God hath graciously given thy servant. You have to remember the last time they saw each other, they were single men. Now J Jacob has all of this, all these animals, all these wives, his handmaids, all these children. Then the handmaidens came near, they and their children, they bowed themselves. And Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves. And after came Joseph near and Rachel, and they bowed themselves. And he said, what meanest thou by all this drove which I met? Basically Esau says, why did you send so many people? Why didn't you just come talk to me? What, what, did you, what was the point of you sending all these people, well, this big crowd? And notice what it says. He says, verse 8, these are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. You can see in some ways it looks like Jacob's still living with some fear, maybe some guilt and regret in the way he's treated his brother. Verse nine, and Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. We saw last chapter, Jacob was trying to give him a ton of animals, a lot of valuable things to appease him. Verse 10, and Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand, for therefore I have seen thy face, as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. We'll get there in a minute, but isn't that interesting? And he urged him, and he took it, verse 12. And he said, let us take our journey and let us go, and I will go before thee. Esau says, let's go together, and I'll go first to kind of protect you. Verse number 13, Jacob says, my Lord knoweth that the children are tender, and the flocks and herds are with, with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly, according as the cattle that goeth before me and the children be able to endure until I come unto my Lord and to say her. And Esau said, let me now leave with thee some of the folk that are with me. And he said, what needeth it? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way unto Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth. We'll look at this next week. Built him a house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth or Sukoth. What do we see here? He comes Esau's coming with his 400 men. Jacob puts all of his, his families all divided like he had done. And then he, I guess, decides, I need to go first. And he goes in front of them and he begins to bow. Begins to bow. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Really, if Esau wanted to, he could have had him killed right there. He could have killed him. 
And Esau runs at him. I have to imagine fear, uncertainty. Why is he running at me? And tears streaming down his eyes. And Esau hugs his neck, basically. And he says, who are all these people? What, what? He says, that's my, that's my, those are my boys. And that's my girl. And this is my wife. And this is Leah. And this is Rachel. And God gave me all of this. And, 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 and Esau said, why are you trying to give me all of these, these gifts? He said, because I'm trying to find grace in your sight, basically, without saying it, I I did you wrong, and I'm trying to make up for it. And Esau says, I have enough. I don't need it. I'm fine. God's taking care of me. And, and, And he goes on, and he says, please take it. I have enough. I want you to have it. And so Esau takes some. Esau says, let's go together. Why don't we go together, and I'll go in front and make sure that we're taken care of, and you're protected. And Jacob says, I've got a lot of young kids. I'm not going to be able to travel very fast. Anybody that's been on a road trip with young kids knows what Jacob's talking about here, right? It's going to take us a while, a lot of potty breaks, and so we can't go very fast. He says, why don't you just go ahead? And Esau says, well, can I at least leave some of my men? Again, remember, Jacob thought he brought 400 men to kill him. Esau brought 400 men to help his brother. Be careful about knowing the motives of others. Be careful about interpreting others' actions through your, it's interesting, I don't know if you ever do this. But my wife and I will sometimes, if we get a text, or not always negative, but she'll read a text or I'll read a text to her, and I'll sometimes joke, and we read it in the tone we think they sent it, don't we? And I'll say, oh, did they say it like that? Like, how do you know that's what they meant by that? And I'll tease her, well, I don't know, it just seems, isn't that interesting how we apply our tone, what we think it is, to somebody else's text or somebody else's email or somebody else's social media post? Be careful. So he comes, and, and Jacob basically says, why don't you go back home, Esau? And we don't know, really, the Bible doesn't tell us if they ever see each other again. But I did see in this passage, I saw last week, Jacob was a changed man. He went from Jacob to Israel. The application for me in some ways is my conversion, a changed man. I went from lost to saved. And then I see in this chapter, in what ways did he change? And what ways, and I want you as we, we're going to look, we're going to look at a few ways that we see that Jacob changed. I want you to think about who he had been and what he was showing now, who he was now. And I want you to ask God, which one of these is an area in my sanctification that I need to change with your help? I would suggest, number one, that Jacob went from prideful to humble. You see verse number three, he bowed himself to the ground seven times. What did he call his brother in verse number five? He said, uh, he called himself thy servant, talking to Esau. He was saying about himself, I'm your servant. He bowed himself. What had Jacob been? Jacob had been the prideful younger brother. I'm going to manipulate. I'm going to get what I want. I don't care how it hurts my dad. I don't care how it hurts my brother. He had been the prideful young man looking out only for himself. And what do we see here? We see that God had done a work in his heart, and he had gone from being prideful to humble. We see, secondly, I see he was deceitful to honest. He went from being deceitful to honest. Jacob literally was a deceiver. And then in verse number eight, what do we see? He says, uh, what meanest thou by all this drove, which I meant? He just tells him the truth. I'm trying to find grace in your sight. Hey, I've done you wrong. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. Instead of manipulating, deceiving, I'm just going to be honest. I want to fix the relationship. He went from being a deceiver to being honest. Number three, he went from self-reliant to God-reliant. What is that? That's faith. Instead of figuring it all out myself, you see it in verse 11? He says, please take these blessings, Esau. Look what he says. Because God hath dealt graciously with me. He understood 
who it was that was in charge of his life and his family and his blessings and his business. He came from a place of, I'm going to rely on my schemes and my plans to God has dealt graciously. I don't deserve this life that I have. I don't deserve these children that I have. I don't deserve all this livestock that I have. But God has been gracious to me. He went from believing he was a self-made man to understanding that it was God's grace in his life. Maybe that's where you or I need to work on in our lives. You know what? Yes, I, I do have this gift in this area, but it's God that gave it to me. Yes, I do have the ability to do really well in business or in sales or in this, but you know what the Bible says? It's God that gives you the power to get wealth. Yes, I'm really musical. I've got these talents, but, but it's God that gave you that brain that can, can do those musical things. We had 25 or 30 teenagers and young adults at our house last night, and that at the end of the, they were there for a few hours and just hanging out, and at the end, they had about an hour of time where they just sang and worshiped. Actually, we sang both of those songs, Holy, 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 and Graves into Gardens. And, and, and I was watching as there were several of them that are unbelievably musically gifted and on the guitar and the piano and vocally, and I got really angry angry and covetous and mad because I can't do any of that. And you know what? It's, it's, it's a wonderful gift, but be careful you don't get lifted up in pride. Look at what I've practiced. Look at what I've done. Oh, God gave you that to use for his glory. God-reliant, from self-reliant to God-reliant. He trusted God's plans instead of only his own schemes. He had been a schemer, and by the way, we still see some traces of it. It was still part of him, and you're still going to struggle with some of the stuff you struggled with before at times, but he was learning what it was to trust God. He went from, we see here, cowardly to courageous. What did Jacob do the last time there was a confrontation with Esau? He fled. Remember? He ran. He left home. He didn't come back for 20 years. He was gone for decades. The last time there was a hard thing in his life to face, he ran. This time, he went out of his way to confront and face the hard thing in his life. God had done a work in his heart, and he went from cowardly to courageous. That area where it's scary to face in our lives, and it would be easier to ignore it. May I say this? It's almost always better in the long run to face it. I see number five, and there are only six of them. I see number five, he went from covetous to content. What did Jacob want 20 years ago? I want my brother's blessing. I want my brother's birthright. I want what doesn't belong to me. And I don't care who I hurt to get it. I'll, I'll deceive my dad. I'll lie to my dad right to his face. I'll trick my brother. I'll, I'll, I'll even use God's name. Remember what he did when he deceived his dad? His dad said, how did you get this, this steak dinner so quick? He said, God just blessed your son. I'll even use God's name to get what I want. A covetous man. And what do you see here? What does he say? Is it verse number nine, his brother says, I have enough? Is it verse 11 that Jacob says, please take it? What does he say? I have what? Enough. What does he say? I have, what is contentment? Contentment is, I have enough. I don't need more. 
God, what you've given me is enough. I'm satisfied. I'm not covetous. I'm content. Jacob, old Jacob was covetous. I don't care who I hurt. I'll use God's name. I'll deceive the people closest to me. I'll do them wrong as long as it makes my life better to now, please take it. And isn't it interesting? He says, Esau says in verse 9, I have enough. Jacob says in verse 11, I have enough. Isn't it interesting how the things that had destroyed their relationship for 20 years didn't really really matter in the long term? In the long run, it didn't really matter. The things that Jacob was willing to lose decades of family relationships over, when he got a little more mature and God did a work in his heart, he didn't really care about that stuff anymore. Be careful the dumb stuff you fight over. Be careful the dumb stuff you, you lose relationships over because you might just come down the road five or 10 or 15 or 20 years later and realize it really wasn't worth it. I have enough. God can deal with that. I'm not going to have that spirit of anger or bitterness toward them. Esau had threatened his brother's life because of it. Jacob had deceived his family because of it. And now they both are saying, I have enough. What are they saying? Both of them. Esau saying, I don't need this brother. I have enough. I'm just glad we get to be together. And Jacob saying, I don't need this brother. I have enough. I want you to have it so you know I really do love you. What were they both saying? People are more important than stuff. Would you say that aloud with me this morning? People are more important. Your family's more important than stuff. That relationship's more important than that, that purchase. People are more important than stuff. Who, who else taught us that? One of the men that had more stuff than anyone that's ever walked the face of the earth, King Solomon. King Solomon, he had more, the Bible says he had more than almost anybody. And yet, what did he teach his son? He told his son in Proverbs chapter number 15, verse number 16, better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Hey, son, focus on your spiritual life more than you focus on your stuff. Hey, son, focus on your relationship with God more than you focus on, on, on your career. Better is little. This is Solomon, the one who had it all, who looked back at his life and said, son, don't make the same mistakes I do. Then he said, better is a dinner of herbs where what is? Love is a dinner of herbs. Sounds just like what it is, like a salad. Even worse than a salad, a kale salad. And all God's people said, no kale lovers in here, right? All right. Oh, oh, Sharice. Anna back there waving your hand. Better is a dinner of disgusting kale where love is. Notice what he says, than a what? A stalled ox. What would a stalled ox be? For my birthday this week, our pastoral staff took me in, in Northern California. There was a steakhouse that was my wife and I, our favorite restaurant. And we would go there on an anniversary or special uh, meal. And I found out when I moved here eight years ago, they had one in Pasadena. I had never been to it here. I'd been to the same one, same restaurant. There's two of them, I think, in the country, one here and one there. And they surprised me. DJ's been with me there in Northern California, so he knew. They surprised me and took me there. And we had amazing steak. It was unbelievable. And we had, we had different steaks and sides, and we had a great time, and I enjoyed it. And I, loved a, I love a good steakhouse. I love a good steak dinner. You know what Solomon's saying here? Better is a dinner of herbs, kale, where love is, than a stalled ox, whatever your favorite cut is. The tenderloin, the New York, some of you get really hungry right now, we're talking about food. The, 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 the tomahawk, bone-in, 
Javen right there. But a stalled ox and hatred therewith. What is he teaching his son? What is he teaching him? Your relationships are more important than your net worth. People are more important than stuff. Better, he said, better is little with the fear of the Lord. Focus on your spiritual life, not just your professional life. Prioritize your spiritual life over your professional life, and then God will bless you in both of them. Better is a dinner of herbs. What did he say in Proverbs 21, verse number 9? He said, it is better to dwell in a corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. What is he saying? It would be better to be married and have just a little studio apartment up in the attic somewhere than to have a mansion and not get along with your spouse. What is he teaching? I've taught my children. I've said this statement as we read these verses often. I believe one of the things he's teaching his son, he's saying, who you are is more important than what you have. Would you say that aloud with me this morning? Who you are is more important than what you have. Now, by the way, it's not wrong to have stuff. Our family has a lot of stuff. We have more stuff than we need. My wife's constantly trying to get me to clean stuff out of the garage and throw stuff away. We have a beautiful home, and God's given us clothes, and we have a, a, a car, a newer car that drives well. This is not—it's not wrong to have stuff, but it is wrong when stuff has you. And he's saying here, what do we see with Jacob? I want, I want, I want, I want. Where do we see the biggest change happen? The chapter after he goes from Jacob to Israel. And what does he go? He goes from covetous to content. I have enough. Can you truly say that this morning? I have enough. I'm satisfied. I'm content. You know what that is? That is sanctification. What did Paul say? I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. You know what that teaches us? It's not natural. It wasn't natural for Paul. Paul was not naturally content. He didn't naturally like it when everything didn't go his way. Paul was just like you and me, but Paul progressed in his sanctification to the place that he could say, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. God, I'm content with what you've given me. I'm content with where you've placed me. Are you content? Can you truly say that? Or do you need to progress in your sanctification? It's interesting. We're here at Thanksgiving, only in America. Could we have a complete day set aside to be grateful for all that God's given us and then go wait in line for hours for the one thing we don't have on Black Friday. We have Thanksgiving on Thursday. And I got an email from every place I've ever bought something on Friday. Spend your money. What are they trying to tell you? You don't have enough. And sometimes I believe them and I buy it. And those emails work and the, and the Instagram ads work. Why? Because I need more. We have Thanksgiving, and then Black Friday, and then Cyber Monday, because we couldn't spend enough on Friday. Now Black Friday's the whole weekend. Now we're going to spend it online. And then if you have anything left, Giving Tuesday, all right? There's, and then it's Broke Thursday, or whatever's coming up this week. I'm not sure. But it's in all of us, isn't it, to, not, to be covetous, not content? But a picture of being sanctified, of becoming more like Christ, is to be content. And then lastly, I see here, he went from being selfish to generous. Verse 11, please, please take my stuff. Who was he before? Please let me have your stuff. Selfish, now generous. You know that generosity 
is a mark of spiritual maturity in the life of the believer. Paul challenged Christians, he said, to grow in the grace of giving. He said, let this mind be in you. What mind was in Christ? The, 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 a, a humble mind and a mind that was willing to give of himself. Become more like Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave. A generous heart is more blessed to give than to receive. A generous heart is a mark of a spiritual, is a mark of spiritual maturity in the believer's life. Jacob had been unbelievably selfish at times. Now we see him giving with a free and open hand. What does the Bible say? The Lord loves what kind of a giver? The Lord loves a cheerful giver. You know what that teaches us? It's not just what we give that God loves. It's how we give and why we give. God does care about our motives in giving. Uh, I, I'm not going to, well, I'm going to give because the Bible says if I don't, God might strike me dead with lightning. By the way, the Bible doesn't say that, but sometimes people feel that way. I've got to give, I guess. I'm, I'm supposed to give to the church or I'm supposed to be nice to other people. I want God to bless me. And we give completely selfishly. And you know what the Bible says? The Lord loves a cheerful giver. That, 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 that word, as you study that Greek word, it's the idea that we use hilarious. It, it's hilarious. It's almost this just frivolity. I can't believe I get to give. I get to bless somebody. It's the most exciting time of my, I get to give. And what is a mark of sanctification where you don't view every relationship and every person and every role at work, you don't view it as how can I get, but you view it as God, you've given this to me. How can I use it to bless others? How can I give? And we see Jacob growing in his sanctification after his spiritual identity change. We see him going from selfish to generous. We should not give only out of a heart of duty or guilt or fear. We should give out of love and joy and a response to all we've been given. What does the Bible say? With what measure you give, with that same measure it shall be given unto you. What does the Bible teach? Give and it shall be given unto you. God says, I've got great blessings for those that learn the joy of giving. He gives back in so many ways. So we see in chapter 33 some of the marks of Jacob's progressive sanctification as a follower of God. What about you in your progressive sanctification? Which of those six stands out as an area that you need God's help growing in? Prideful to humble, deceitful to honest, self-reliant to God-reliant, cowardly to courageous, covetous to content, selfish to generous, I see all six of these changes in Jacob's life. Is there at least one of those that you need God's help to become more like him? You need to grow in your sanctification and you need his help. You know what Jacob, this is an Old Testament narrative, but you know what Jacob was displaying in his life? He was displaying in the New Testament what Paul called the fruits of the Spirit. We have the verse there, Galatians chapter, uh, I believe it's number five. The Bible says, but the fruit of the Spirit, would you read them aloud with me, is what? Is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is. And in that same chapter, Paul says the works of the flesh, and he compares and contrasts the works of the flesh to the fruits of the Spirit. But it's interesting he doesn't say, these are the works of the believer. Because if they were, then I have to try really hard to love more and be joyful and peaceful. He doesn't say they're the works of the believer. 
He says they're the fruits of the Spirit. It's the difference of, I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and be a nicer person. It's the difference of that too. I'm going to surrender to the Spirit inside of me and let Him guide me. And those fruits, what does fruit do? Fruit naturally grows on a healthy tree. That's what fruit does, right? It takes some time, but if you have a tree in the right conditions, planted in the right soil, if you have a plant planted in the right way, you water it, you pull the weeds, you take care of it, what happens? A farmer cannot force fruit. A farmer cannot, cannot yell at it. He can't do anything. A farmer has to do the things that a plant needs to be healthy, and then God gives the fruit. And Paul said, the things that we saw in Jacob's life, those are the fruits of the Spirit, not the works of the flesh. You're never going to be able to love the way God loves in your own strength. So what does he say? Walk in the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, as believers, spend time in God's Word. Spend time in prayer. Read His Word. If you're struggling with anger, memorize passages of Scripture there. Have somebody that you're walking through a Bible study with, a mentor, an aged Christian, teaching a younger Christian. Talk, walk through those things. Find some good, godly Christian counseling. And every day, God, would you help me to humble myself, to lay down, Paul said, I die daily, to mortify the members of my flesh. Would your Holy Spirit rise up in me, and would your Spirit bear fruit through me? How does somebody that struggles with anger become a long-suffering person? Not in their own strength, it's a fruit of the Spirit. How does someone that's bitter at somebody become forgiving? It's a fruit of the Spirit. And in your life and in mine, what happened to Jacob here was he is, he is displaying the fruits of the Spirit. By the way, fruit takes time. It cannot be forced. It's dependent upon being planted in the right conditions. But they are the things that, on that verse that naturally come out of our lives as we walk in the Spirit, as we spend time in thanksgiving, as we think on good things, as we listen to godly music, as we gather with our church family, as we study the Bible daily, as we memorize Scripture, as we read Scripture, as we find an accountability partner with that besetting sin that we struggle with. Guess what will start to happen in your life? Slowly these fruits will start to bud, and slowly they'll be, start to grow, and before you know it, our lives become characteristic characterized by these fruits. Does anybody here know a long-suffering Christian? Someone that just has a ton of patience, is just the kindest person you've ever met. Does anybody know a joyful Christian? That's a fruit of the Spirit. You know what probably happened there? I get it that we all have a little different personalities, but probably that person dwells on the goodness of God in their life. And that person thinks about how good God has been to them. And you know what naturally comes out? They put in, they water their soul with the goodness of God and the fruit of joy naturally grows out. Before you know it, the man or woman you've been for decades can begin to fall away and you see yourself being changed into his image. That anger you couldn't control begin to weaken as the fruit of joy and peace and long suffering and meekness becomes prevalent. That covetousness will fall away as it's replaced by a godly joy and contentment no matter your circumstances, your bank account, or any other external influence. That harshness with your kids can be replaced with a Christ-like love and gentleness. That bitterness can be replaced with long-suffering and forgiveness. This is what Christ can do in a life if we'll let him. I think Jacob did. Jacob let God change him. Yes, 
his position, he changed from Jacob to Israel. In God's sight, he's no more Jacob, he's now Israel. He's a prince with God, not a deceiver. But also progressive sanctification. What should change in you and in me? Teach, can you throw that slide with the six things up one more time? And may I say this morning as we're done, if you're not saved this morning, I want to challenge you to let him change your identity. Become a believer in Christ. And if you are saved, allow him to do his sanctifying work in bringing you to a place of spiritual maturity. What needs to change in us? God can make the change. Oh, there will be times it pops its head back up. And you might lose your temper, or you might, you might say a white lie, or you might be deceitful. You're, you're still going to have the spirit and the, and the flesh warring with one another until, until the ultimate sanctification, the glorification. But you know what can happen? As we begin to feed and pull the weeds of our sin nature, and we begin to feed our souls with spiritual things, you know what begins to happen? The fruits of the spirit begin to pop out. A familiar illustration I close with. Many of you have probably heard it dozens of times. The story is told of, of a man that was led to Christ by a missionary. And the preacher led him to Christ, and he came back to check on him. He had been saved, and he came back to check on him a short time later. And he said, how are you doing as a new believer, as a baby in Christ? And he said, well, some days I do good, and some days I do bad. He said, well, what do you mean? Explain it to me. He said, well, I don't know how to explain it other than inside of me there's two dogs fighting. He said, there's a good dog and there's a bad dog. And they fight with each other and, and some days the good dog wins and some days the bad dog wins. And he's, he's talking to him some more. He said, well, explain that to me. What decides which dog wins? And here's what he said. He said, you know what I found? The dog I feed the most wins. If you feed your flesh... Don't be surprised when the works of the flesh pop out. We cannot help but speak the things which we have both seen and heard. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. We're not spending any time pondering and dwelling on the truths of Scripture, gathering with a church family, listening to godly music. Is it any wonder that what's coming out of us doesn't reflect the fruits of the Spirit? The one I feed the most wins. This week, let's feed our spirit more than we feed our flesh. And let's watch as the fruits of the Spirit begin, God begins to change us into his image. That progressive sanctification. The prideful can become humble. The cowardly can become courageous. The self-reliant can become God-reliant. The selfish can become generous. The deceitful can become honest. The covetous can become content but never long-term in your own strength. Only long-term through the truth and the life-changing power of the gospel of Christ. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.